Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the 73rd episode of the What If Football podcast here on the Sports Social Podcast Network. We're taking a look at the Gazprom, or as, or as normal people call it, the UEFA Champions League. It is back, the second half of the last 16 ties, the first legs at least, are taking place this week. So we thought we'd come back with another episode of the Gazprom. It's 1997 and 1998. Can Borussia Dortmund retain their Champions League? Well, let's find out and get stuck straight in. And Borussia Dortmund is where we will start. But first, I need to tell you about this thing we've got called Patreon. Yes, it is a Patreon page for What If Football, where we do nostalgic podcasts like this. So if you do enjoy these nostalgic trips down memory lane to the 90s, to the 2000s, etc., even further back, we do podcasts like the Great Games podcast. We look at fantastic football matches from years gone by. Recently, we did the... A bit too recent, but the Manchester City 4, Tottenham Hotspur 3 clash from 2019 in the Champions League. We also do podcasts like the Head to Head podcast, Story of My Season podcast, and the Combined 11 podcast, as well as keeping up to date with all the contemporary football with a weekly column or two, as well as alternate football histories chocked full in a mailbag and football manager stuff, video game stuff, etc. That's just for £1 a month. Five days a week, 4.8 pence per piece of content. So if you like stuff like that, get your send on down to patreon.com forward slash whatifootball for that one. But here today we're looking at the Champions League, the grandes equipes, as they say, and the grandest of the equipes in 1997 was Borussia Dortmund and they were drawn in Group A. Now, Hotmar Hitzfeld, he was gone. He was promoted to sporting director, a bit like we'll see with Barcelona later on. 
Dortmund had finished third in Das Bundesliga, but they're here, of course, because they won the tournament last year. And it does mean for the first time in the history of the Champions League, first time in the history of the European Cup, in fact, that three teams from the same nation, being Germany, of course, will take part in one season of the Champions League. Now, of course, this is the very first season where multiple teams were allowed. We've got the expansion from 16 to 24 teams, of course. So we've got six groups to discuss today, as well as the knockout phase, which has, which has remained the same. But the format changes we'll get onto later on. Group A. Dortmund are paired off with the likes of Parma, Sparta Prague and Galatasaray. Now, Parma have absolutely shot to fame. This is, of course, their very first Champions League season. But the Novello Scala era was over. They'd only got promoted to the top flight in 1990. So it's seven short years be- behind us. They'd graduated from a first Coppa Italia win in 92 to the Cup Winners' Cup in 93 and the Super Cup in 1993 as well. And then graduating one step further, the UEFA Cup over Juventus in 1995. Even more impressive, the fact is that it's over two legs and what Juventus have done since then. And now, thanks to finishing second behind Juventus in Serie A, Parma are into the Champions League. Can they go that one step beyond that? Now, Parma have got one hell of a team. Parma have got one hell of a team. Load up championship manager 1997-98. I think it's still freeware. The team they have is Absolutely unbelievable. Now, of course, rare that a few of these aren't really in their peak, really. You've got Gigi Buffon, Lillian Taram, Enrico Chiesa, Fabio Cannavaro, Stefano Fiore, Dino Baggio, Hernan Crespo and Tino Espria. Although Espria has since gone to Newcastle, as we'll be discussing later on. So Parma should, should have a... A, a fighting chance really in this in this Champions League season but they struggle to a point in Prague Hernan Crespo however was crucial in wins over Galatasaray and then Dortmund and Parma are doing quite well defensively as well we might think of look all this superb attacking talent but with Taram and Cannavaro and especially Buffon in there Parma are a very very good defensive team and, and it's a Crespo that took me back when I was watching the highlights because he's He's a skinhead. Old Baldy Crespo scores an acrobatic overhead kick against Dortmund and uh, Palmer fully at the races. Meanwhile, Dortmund aren't going too badly either. George Heinrich has a tremendous game against Sparta Prague, scores two in a 4-1 win there. And um, Palmer's Palmer's first concessions come from an Andy Moller double at the Westfalen Stadion win a 2-0 win. Um, a free kick and a rebound off a penalty for Moller, who broke them English hearts, didn't he, in 96 so we've got Palmer, we've got Dortmund there trading wins in match day three and four. Thankfully for those two, as they take points off one another, Sparta Prague and Galatasaray doing exactly that. So we get to match day five. Dortmund at top of the table on nine points, Palmer seven points, Sparta Prague on four, Galatasaray on three, which means that Palmer versus Sparta Prague couldn't be more important in the penultimate match day. Meanwhile, you've got Mikel Zork, current sporting director of Dortmund, hammering in two goals against Galatasaray to confirm their own spot in the quarter-final. Meanwhile, Parma and Rico Chiesa on the counter-attack against Sparta Prague. Parma think they've won. It's a very, very late winner, it seems. But then Sparta Prague hit back. Yuri Novotny from a free kick on the 88th minute. Josef Obojadin, Obojadin on the counter, 89th minute. And you think Sparta Prague, they're going, th- they're going second. They may have a chance to qualify for the quarter-finals. But then... 
Enrico Chiesa dispatches in the final minute. A bit of a soft penalty to get it, but um, regardless, Parma are on eight points going into the final group stage game. We'll be looking at all the final group stage games because they all play into one another. They all blend into one another because the format is the six group winners go through automatically to the quarterfinals and you've got two best second place teams. So we'll uh, we'll look at all the final match days before we look at the uh, look at the knockout stages at the end of the show. So speaking of German teams, we've got the return of Bayern München, Bundesliga winners under Giovanni Trapattoni. They too, like Parma, have graduated from you winning the UEFA Cup and winning it against the likes of Zinedine Zidane's Bordeaux. They would get to the semi-finals the following year, didn't retain, but Bayern have got a very good blend. You've got your, your Oliver Kahn, your Marcus Babbles, Christian Zieger, Didi Hammond, Mehmet Scholl, Jürgen Klinsmann, Jean-Pierre Papin, Lothar Matthäus. So you've got a a really good good blend of youth and experience, especially with Matthias, although his sticking point famously is the Champions League. And Bayern did start off the season with a loss at home to Kaiserslautern, would be a bit of a banner year for Kaiserslautern, maybe we'll see them on the next Gazprom episode. Um, but Bayern Munich were, uh, were favourites to qualify from this group. You've got your PSGs, who were, who were pretty good. They've been successful domestically. They won the Coupe de France in 93 and 95, Coupe de la Ligue in 95 as well. Paired that off with a league earn in 1994, but they've finished the past two years in second place, first to an entertaining Auxerre, and then to Monaco we'll be speaking of later on. But have shown, crucially, for me anyway, the, uh, since we're talking about the Gazprom, they've shown their European pedigree. They've appeared in the in the previous two Cup Winners' Cup finals, beat Rapid Vienna in 1996, one of their only European trophies, even today with their super team. But in 1997, I mean, it's... Admittedly, fair enough, isn't it? Ronaldo, Barcelona, he, it was his final, wasn't it? And um, PSG this season would win another domestic cup double and they had lost the likes of Yuri Jokhev but have gained Leonardo. So like Mikel Zork for Dortmund, their current sporting director for PSG there. And PSG do start quite hot. The other um, names in the group, by the way, Besiktas and Gothenburg, who are kind of on the back nine as a um, as a force as we get closer and closer to the uh, the old millennium there. Bruno Ingotti was the man starting PSG off hot. A lovely half volley and a bit of a daft own goal in a uh, in a 3-0 win over Gothenburg. Um, but Bayern, on the other hand, they ease expected later to win. Scoring three in Gothenburg again is impressive. Sublime Didi Hamann volley in that one. Um, doesn't look at all like Didi Hamann. I had to double check, see if it actually was him and not just somebody with the same name, but very, very youthful Didi Hamann there. And you've got the likes of Giovanni Elbe, Carsten Janker, of course, the strike partnership for Bayern at this time, as it would be as we get into the new millennium. They get doubles in probably the best performance by anybody in this group, in any group, a 5-1 win over PSG, which had all the hallmarks of a, of a huge game, as much as it is now, and as much as people might lament PSG for spending all this money and being a quote-unquote new club, they, they had a very, very successful 90s as well, not just, you know, recently in their supreme domination of a French football. Being at UEFA, we do count head-to-head, don't we? So 5-1 is absolutely crucial, given especially a 3-1 loss in Paris for Bayern. And it meant that Bayern did need a win in Istanbul to qualify. Karsten Janke, Helmer, they get the goals. Bayern easily through, and PSG, they needed their first win on the road. They'd not won away in the uh, in the Gazprom as of yet this season. They needed to win to keep them in the hunt going into the 
into the last match day and we get a late, late goal from, and I'm going to take a run up at this, Rabe Santa Dadana, kind of. I apologise, um, but yes. A Besiktas win would have eliminated, um, a Besiktas win in Paris would eliminate PSG, likely not to put Besiktas through either, given their goal, given their points record. PSG, though, they need another win and other results to go their way. And we'll, we'll take a look at that later on as we get through. Meanwhile, in the other game, in the other final group game, Marcus Babel scores a an own goal looks very familiar. Um, shades of Gary Neville in Kazakhstan with that one, except it's not got the um, the old Borat advertisement board around the Olympia Stadion in Munich, which is the only thing missing from it, really. And our last group, before we little take a little break and um, dissect the rest of the groups, we've got a bit of an underdog group in Group F. You've got your Monaco's, Bayer Leverkusen, Sporting Club de Portugal's and Liers. Who are they? Well, they're Belgian champions from 1997, their fourth ever title. Unfortunately, now dissolved, been dissolved um, since 2018, unfortunately, Liers. Um, other hand, we've got Sporting Club de Portugal, or just, just call them Sporting, they have won, come off the back of their first trophy in 1995, since the double, since the League and Cup double in 82. They qualified via second place in uh, in the Portuguese leagues. They've got the likes of Chamao and uh, a very young Nuno Valente as well. Leverkusen, ultimately not, ultimately as ever, um, by an Everkusen, fortunate to, uh, unfortunate not to win the uh, the Bundesliga. They lost 4-0 in Köln and that sort of tips them over the edge, allows Bayern in, so to speak. You've got the likes of the Kovac brothers, you've got uh, Jens Novotny, Emerson, Kasten Ramelow, Paolo Rink, led by Christoph Daum as well, um, a once sought-after manager, not so much as we get into the new millennium, but uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. And uh, meanwhile, Monaco, they've ended a nine-year wait for a league and title. Um, they've got a very, very youthful squad, headed by, of course, Thierry Henry and David Trezeguet, very young, exciting squad. You've got your... Fabian Bartes, Willy Sagnol, Costinha, Sylvan Legwinski, any Fulham fans in the uh, dabs.com era of the shirts, the Pizza Hut era. Um, and you've got Ludovic Julie as well. And um, French clubs were, were very, very exciting before the rest of mainly English teams really decided that um, they actually produced really, really good footballs. Maybe the 98 World Cup had something to do with that. That was kind of French clubs downfall, apart from Lyon, of course. So let's get into the matches. And it did not start well for Monaco. A 3-0 win in uh, in Lisbon, a 3-0 defeat in Lisbon against uh, Sporting, of course. Mustafa Hadji, for any Coventry fans out there, he scores a pick of the goals there in the green and white. But it is doubles for Thierry Henry and Victor Ikeba in the, um, in the second match in a 4-0 route of Leverkusen, which really, really lays down a marker for the French club. And all these goals from Henry, um, he has not changed one bit. They're all classic Thierry Henry goals. Cutting him from the left in that left half space. Curling it into the bottom corner. Does likewise against Lierce as well. And six goals across the matches against Lierce pretty much puts Monaco into the driving seat with Leverkusen. They both are far and away above the rest. And that's mainly because Sporting had flopped since the first match day. They'd thought they'd got a winner against um, against Lierce through Leandro, but... But the Belgians equalise and Leverkusen blow them away in the third and fourth match days. And and Emerson for Leverkusen scores, blows Sporting away in a 4-0 win. And that's pretty much coming into match day five, Monaco versus Sporting. Absolutely crucial. Sporting, though, take a 2-0 lead. So it's a bit like, they're a bit like Monaco's kryptonite, it seems. But um, 
a stunning comeback to uh, pretty much seal Monaco's place, although they're not quite through just yet. You've got um, Trezeguet, you've got two tappings from Thierry Henry, turning things right around, eliminating Sporting, winning 3-2, essentially putting Leverkusen and Monaco through to the last day. A point between the two, a little bit of um, non-aggression packed, and we'll see them through if they both just draw, but... Um, more on that one later. And more on the rest of the groups. We've got Man United, we've got Juventus, we've got Barcelona and Real Madrid to come. Stick around after this short break. Welcome back. Now we discussed a lot of uh, Man United and Ju- Juventus last time around, didn't we, in the uh, in the first episode of the Gazprom. So I won't I won't bore you to tears with that one, but a bit has changed in the uh, Manchester United ranks. Eric Cantona, of course, has retired. Now, for as influential as Cantona was in the Premier League, and we know that he pretty much dragged Manchester United to at least three of the four Premier League titles that he won between 93 and um, and 96 and 97 in his retirement, he didn't really quite do it in, in Europe. And Roy Keane has lamented such since that he wasn't as powerful in Europe. And I think that's largely because of the systems, the formations played in Europe are a bit more fluid than they were back home in England, where... Every team was pretty much playing 4-4-2. And the better teams, who are the teams that punched above their weight, were playing 4-4-1-1. Manchester United were one of those. Cantona playing in between the lines. And around this time, with Cantona's retirement, you probably saw the writing on the walls with your Gianfranco Zolas, Dennis Bergkamps. We'll discuss all that in the Barclays, which is returning next week, by the way. A little plug there. So that means Cantona's between the lines stuff wasn't really as revolutionary on the continent, wasn't as impactful. So let's get into the matches. We covered both of those last week. So any hope for Feyenoord was was blown away because it's Feyenoord, it's Coxsice and it's uh, Manchester United and Juventus. Any hope for Feyenoord blown away in the very first match day against Juventus. Feyenoord's got a penalty, but Del Piero scores too early. Super Pippo, Zinedine Zidane and uh, at a fifth rolled in there. But the standout tie does come from match day two. It's Juventus travelling to Old Trafford. Now, Yesterday, we had a look at some great European nights at Old Trafford. You've got your Manchester United 7, Roma 1 from 2007. And I lumped this game in with some of the best European nights in the Champions League era as well, at least um, at Old Trafford. And it starts off horrifically. Alessandro Del Piero scores inside a minute. And you have almost United fans, United players too, must have a spot of PTSD about Juventus having been beaten so handsomely. Sir Alex Ferguson, or rather Alex Ferguson, still got that gripe about playing playing big teams off the park and teams come no bigger um, with reputation and quality combined than Juventus in 1997. Sheringham scores, Skulls scores, Ryan Giggs scores, and potentially, I think it's easily the best Champions League night under Sir Alex Ferguson yet, of course, many, 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 many more to come, which we'll be discussing throughout this year as we look at certain Gazprom Champions League seasons. A thunderous Ryan Giggsford. Juve do score at the end, but um, 3-2 win. A big hurdle has been overcome there by, by United, but crucially in terms of getting them through to the next stage, the quarterfinals, wins home and away against Feyenoord. You've got Paul Scholes with a beautiful volley at Old Trafford. Dennis Irwin penalty sealing the game there. And then Andy Cole scores a famous hat-trick in Rotterdam 
Two tap-ins and a bit of a lob there um, from Andy Cole, who's finally finding his groove at United, you think. And that does confirm United's place in the quarter-final, especially with a, with a routine home win over the Slovakians, Kokshais, and um, Juventus were looking that way pretty much too. They scored two... Well, they considered two dodgy free-kick goals to make it um, interesting, a 3-2 win over, Juvent- uh, over um, Feyenoord. But like PSG with Bayern, Feyenoord wouldn't overturn that head-to-head on Juventus despite a um, a win there. The result left Juventus needing to get something in Turin on match day six. More on that later, but the opponents, of course, are Manchester United. So Juventus has Champions League hopes hanging by a thread, a fourth Potential fourth UEFA final in a row hanging by a thread if they cannot get through this group phase. And we've got Group C, which holds the other other English interest, of course. Kevin Keegan's entertainers now under the management of Kenny Dalgleish, of course. Um, Gone were the stalwarts, David Ginola, Les Ferdinand, Peter Beardsley. In came your likes of Alessandro Pistone and John Dal Tomlinson for a bit of uh, European experience. Um, you'd, You'd expect... Newcastle's strict 4-4-2 wide play, get it out to the wide men and get Alan Shearer on the end of the crosses. Need to adapt that in this group. You've got PSV and Dynamo Kiev, absolutely no mugs. Barcelona have undergone a bit of a change there, no mugs either. It's Louis van Gaal's Barca Army. Barcelona, of course, coming off an incredible year. But ultimately, in the eyes of the higher-ups, a transitional one. They'd, they'd signed and sold Ronaldo in the space of a year, which always bugged me, um, just keep hold of him, he's like one of the best strikers going, they win the Copa del Rey, they win the Cup Winners Cup under Bobby Robson, not enough apparently, but um, the plan had already been in place for Bobby Robson to move upstairs, Robson thought he had two years, Van Hal was already contacted as he reached the end of his time at Ajax, so therefore Robson was of course the buffer between the total football of Cruyff and a different iteration, but still roughly along the same lines, um, total football of um, Louis van Gaal. Now, van Gaal was was expected to make Barcelona play that they ought to have been playing, the, the style that they, that they set in motion in 1988 when they signed Johan Cruyff. And you've got the huge additions, a fantastic summer in terms of transfers. Ronaldo has been swapped out for Rivaldo, so not a bad swap there. You've got Sonny Anderson up front and Michael Reisinger at the, uh, at the back there. Now, Barcelona and the Netherlands will become inextricably linked in the next few years, already are, but in terms of playing staff, Louis van Gaal would take it to an absolute another level. I think he had about 11 Dutchmen on the the payroll at one point. But a spanner was thrown in the works, and who could throw a spanner in the works of Barcelona in such a promising season, with such a promising young manager as well? Well, it was St. James's Park, it was Tino Aspria with the hat-trick at St. James's Park. Um, goes tumbling for a for a penalty. Three two is the scoreline. Barcelona pretty handedly defeated. But let's go to Ukraine. The dark horse of Sergei Rebrov, Andrei Shevchenko are ap- combining to absolutely deadly effect. They scored two in Eindhoven in a three one win. Two more against Newcastle. Somehow Newcastle bundling two um, two goals late. John Beresford and a, a bizarre own goal ties the match. But then you've got the the matches against Barcelona. I mean, are now legendary. Sergei Rebrov was the star in the 3-0 humbling in Kiev. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. But Shevchenko turns up in the, in the camp now, doesn't he? And... Um, for a bit more of an in-depth discussion on that, we did a Great Games podcast over there on our Patreon about that one, and there's another little plug for you. Anyway, Shevchenko's got a hat-trick in a 4-0 route of Barcelona. Nobody really does that to Barcelona, not in this time. Rarely, even now, when they're at their lowest ebb for the past, well, it must be nearly 40 years now, nobody really does it now either. And um, Shevchenko was brilliant that night. Dynamo Kiev were, and they've now become favourites, before um, and before the PSV doubleheader, Newcastle were as well, but Newcastle failed to score. PSV won twice. It ultimately was only PSV's only wins of the group stage, which means a point at home for Dynamo Kiev against the Dutch club confirms their place in the quarterfinals. And going into the the final match, PSV need a win at home to Barcelona, and they do lead on the hour. Vim Yonk and De Bilder, who's been absolutely incredible in front of goal. And um, they needed favours, though. More on that one later. But our final group is Group D. We've done it in a hodgepodge order here, but here we go. We've got Real Madrid's return to the Champions League. Won only their second La Liga title since 1919. Of course, that is down to the uh, the dominance of Johan Cruyff of Barcelona, the Dream Team, etc. You've got Atletico Madrid chucking in their little double in there as well, um, haven't you? And as a result, since the format change from the European Cup to the Champions League, this is only their third second ever season in the Champions League the last time they were here a quarter final exit to, uh, to Juventus the eventual champions of course in 1996 since then or rather since the format change they've gone on a bit of a losing streak in the in European competitions PSG in the Cup Winners Cup quarter final in 94 and in the, the UEFA Cup quarter final in 1993 Torino defeated them in the 1992 UEFA Cup semi-final, even Odense in 1995 in the round of 32 in the UEFA Cup. So, Real Madrid benefited the most from Atletico Madrid's sort of... They're doing it this season out there as we're speaking here in 2022, winning the league and then dropping off significantly because they can't handle the the pressure of going again for the, for, the, uh, for the returning of the title. That happened in 1997 as well. Barcelona concentrating on the cup competitions mean that Real Madrid win La Liga. Meanwhile, you've got elsewhere in the group, fairly simple on paper, really. Um, Olympiacos are in there, Rosenborg, Porto. Porto and Rosenborg both coming off a good time of it in the in the tournament. The previous year, Rosenborg only eliminated by the finalists in the quarterfinal, that being Juventus. And Porto had their first knockout stage appearance since the dodgy one-legged semi-finals that they had in 1994. They obviously got knocked out by Manchester United in the end in the quarter-finals. Now, of course, Real Madrid far and away the favourites and rightfully right, wiped the floor early on with all their opponents. Four against Rosenborg, crucial away winning Porto, winning 2-0, and then they put another five beyond Olympiacos as well. Although a young, a very young Nikos Dabizas headed in to put Olympiacos 1-0 up in that 5-1 win for Real Madrid blast from the past as he was Newcastle fans will remember him I'm certain of that meanwhile it was it was very hard to deduce who would follow Real Madrid into the into the knockout phase it was probably a case of 
probably case of nobody given the, the given the format change. But you have you've got a Stelios Giannakopoulos. All the all the cult heroes from the Premier League are out today, aren't they? In this episode, but uh, you got a ridiculous Stelios Giannakopoulos goal beating um, beating Porto volley from thirty yards, and it's probably. Probably the goal of the group stage, I'll say that. Um, then you've got Olympiacos. Unfortunately, after that, got done 10-2 on aggregate by Rosenborg and Real Madrid. So they're kind of out of it. You've got Rosenborg. They beat Porter, our old friend from the previous episode, Harold Bratback. He's back. He's Bratback, in fact. And uh, so going into the reverse game, Porter, because of the stupid, ridiculous Puskas award winning, hopefully, Stelios goal, and Harold Bratback... Porto were effectively out. They've not even scored either. They'd get a point in the fourth match day at home to Rosenborg. Um, Rosenborg really solidifying their hopes of a quarterfinal return as well. And they go one step further. Your boy Bratback scores again in a momentous, absolutely, probably the best result in Rosenborg's history, maybe. Um, a 2-0 win over Real Madrid. Um, and in the, the, the replays, the, the highlights... I got cold just watching it. Um, November, December in uh, Trondheim, or maybe they might have played it in Oslo, but it was it looked absolutely freezing. One of them mid nineties Champions League nights where you, where you get your Dynamo Kievs and that, that sort of team, and this snow absolutely everywhere. It was it was a delightful um, glimpse back into the past. But as we go into as we go into the, the final match day, Real Madrid are on 10 points, Rosenborg are on 10 points, Olympiacos and Porto are on four, they don't matter. But the point is, Real Madrid and Rosenborg are split on head-to-head. A win for Real Madrid was enough, and um, a win seemed likely enough for Rosenborg in Greece, but we'll check all that out after the break. But we've got, let's do a bit of a roll call before we go into the, the sixth match days after the other side of the break. We've got four group winners confirmed. We've got Bayern Munich. Dynamo Kiev, the little dark horses there, thanks to Rebrov and Shevchenko. You've got Manchester United and you've got the holders, Borussia Dortmund as well. Up in the air, you've got Monaco playing Leverkusen. Maybe they'll play for a draw. Maybe they won't. Who knows? They're probably both through either way. Real Madrid and Rosenborg. Rosenborg, they both, well, to be fair, both teams need a result. And um, we'll have a look at the second place rankings before match day six after this short break. Welcome back. Let's check out them lovely little second place rankings before the final match day. And what every team pretty much needs. Leverkusen top and looking pretty, really. We've um, with 12 points. They only need a point against Monaco, as we discussed. Rosenborg are on 10 points. They need a win. A win would eliminate the, the other four teams there, essentially. You've got Juventus on nine points out of the uh, qualification spots, really. They need a win and they need Olympiacos to do them a solid at home to Rosenborg. PSG are also on nine. They need they need a win. They need Olympiacos to do them a solid. And they also need Manchester United to get something in Turin. Meanwhile, you've got the other teams who probably won't get through. Parma and PSV on eight. They both need wins. And because of um, Parma's goal difference record, PSV need a win. They need Olympiacos, Manchester United, Besiktas and Galatasaray to get something. Will that happen? Absolutely not. Plus... Galatasaray did get something. They got a point. They got a point. A 1-1 draw, which, despite Enrico Chiesa's goal, not good enough. A beautiful team move, but ultimately Parma fall right at the final hurdle and they do finish second. But regardless, they're out. So bye-bye Parma. We've got the other Italian representative, Juventus, 
and they were nil-nil for the longest time. 84th minute, super pippo, diving header on the back post, super late goal. But it didn't confirm much yet because they, they needed a they needed a result from Athens and Rosenborg were winning. You've got, of course, it goes without saying, Harold Bratback. Now, I, I know I've been praising Harold Bratback a lot, but Sigurd Rushfeldt had been scoring some very, very important goals for the Norwegians. And he does so in Greece as well. And the winning 2-1. So as it was, we're down to the final two minutes. Juventus are winning. And by the way, it needs to be said, Monaco and Leverkusen did play for that point. Obviously, Monaco threw Leverkusen through with that one. And Real Madrid did beat Porto. So you've got Real Madrid through, you've got Monaco through and Leverkusen. So it all comes down really to... To Olympiakos Rosenborg, Juventus can't change anything now. They're winning 1-0, but Rosenborg are winning 2-1. As it's done, you've got Juventus going out. The clock ticks down, two minutes to go. And Rosenborg concede a curling free kick. 2-2 draw. Olympiakos help Juventus out immeasurably. And uh, Juventus will be playing in the in the quarterfinals and we may as well start with quarterfinals and Juventus, hadn't we? And by the way, PSV drew with Barcelona. They did lead on the hour, but um, they needed so much to go right for them, didn't they? And it, it did, just didn't happen at the end of the day. Juventus drew a bit of a tricky tie in the quarterfinals. They've got Dynamo Kiev and Dynamo Kiev got an invaluable away goal, really. But Super Pippo salvaged something. Typically on the rebound, um, but ultimately with a one-one draw at home, they need to go to Kiev in March and um, and get something. Ultimately, it was the two stars of the show for both teams: Pippo Inzaghi, Sergei Rebrov. Both stars who traded the sides' goals. Match of tappings really was the second leg. But despite it being a match of tappings, Inzaghi bags a hat trick. Of course, he does. Uh, Del Piero follows and have one in, so you've got four-one winners. For Juventus, 5 to an aggregate. And it means that Manchester United and Monaco would be the prize in the semi-final. And an away goal that Dynamo Kiev got was one that United craved. One that they couldn't achieve in Monaco as well. But then you get to five minutes into the return leg at Old Trafford. And this is where the away goals, after a nil-nil first leg, the away goals really, really ramps up the, the tension and Trezeguet scores one inside five minutes at Old Trafford. United need to find two in the next 85 minutes. Could only find one, of course, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And after such a good performance the previous season in reaching the semi-finals to be knocked out by Borussia Dortmund, they are out in the um, in the quarterfinals and they probably would have fancied their chances against Juventus despite the... Um, despite the loss on match day six, because they'd already beaten them. Although that the the score lines in the group phase would have had Juventus through on away goals to the final, but maybe, maybe um, Manchester United would have um, had the psychological advantage, so to speak, but uh, there we are. The semi-final, though, for Juventus was comparatively a breeze compared to um, compared to the Di- Dynamo Kiev match. You got a 4-1 win, but in the first leg, of course, and that pretty much kills kills the first leg. For Monaco, another hat-trick in a Juventus shirt, but this time it's Alessandro Del Piero. Um, his free kick in the game is absolutely majestic. Costini's away goal for, for Monaco puts a little tinge of doubt on it, but um, Nicola Amoruso levels that uh, away goal up in Monaco inside 15 minutes. And and Juventus go through 6-4 in aggregate fairly simply. So Juventus are through to the fifth, to a fourth UEFA final in a row. How 
damn predictable. And it, it, had it not been for a free kick in Athens in a match that they weren't even taking place in, which is what made the this format really so chaotic. The 24 teams, and we'll see it as we go on the following season, it'll only be a format in play for two years. And we'd see it with um, Manchester United the following season. They were looking out for results elsewhere um, to get through, essentially. And obviously, they reached the final. Just as Juventus do here, would they have the same result as Manchester United in 99? Well, we'll find out because Real Madrid, forget the Italian job. This was the German job. All three German outfits were in Real Madrid's half of the draw. Now, Leverkusen had been pretty impressive in the groups. And... um, and they were against Real Madrid, but they fell to a Christian Carambo topok late on. And with the wind taken out of the sails for the second leg, Carambo and Morientes scoring quick succession. And um, Real Madrid were through to the semi-finals. First season back in a while, um, and they're back into the semi-finals. Probably have the the fitness advantage, really, or the, the fatigue advantage, because the first all-German match in post-unification in the European Cup was um, only two occasions we almost had it in the 70s. We almost had Bayern versus Gladbach in 76, but Gladbach got eliminated by Real Madrid. Almost had it in 1977, but Bayern Munich got eliminated by Dynamo Kiev. It's Borussia Dortmund versus Bayern Munich here, and there's no goals across 180 minutes, so therefore we're going to extra time. And the holders shot through. Stefan Chapuisat, maybe that little bit of experience from the previous season shone through there. Measured volley into the corner, composure, 100. And um, there's no away goal. There's no away goal in um, in the Bernabeu for Dortmund either, which means the um, which means Real Madrid go back to the West Valen Stadion um, with a huge advantage. The, the ultras for Madrid um, pulled the goal down, delaying the fixture for a little bit. But then it's the dream team again, isn't it? Morientes Carambo with the uh, with the goals and a 2-0 win. And a fourth nil-nil in a row in terms of um, fourth failures to score in a row, should I say, inside 90 minutes um, at the Westfalen Stadion means that Real Madrid go through to the final to play Juventus, of course. And in the final, it's a game settled by, it's one of those cagey, matches really the Champions League final sometimes the Champions League final more often the World Cup final because it's such an important game that players freeze and it's, it's only natural of course this game was fairly similar to to those occasions it's a 1-0 win it's a goal from Predrag Mijatovic and um, he had a premonition that he'd score the winning goal up to the final and he comes into the game injured with a very very small calf tear but regardless, if he, he he was training stealthily light on the uh, on the build up, so he wasn't injured because he could not miss the match. The um, Jupp Hankers, the Real Madrid manager, wanted to penalty practice, and this puts Miatovic in a bit of a corner in the build up to the match because if he takes a penalty, then his calf's going to tear. He's going to be out of the game, and he just said, "We don't need to practice penalties. We'll win it in normal time." And so. <laughs> Sort of hoodwinks the uh, the manager there into not t- not practicing penalties, um, and as it happens, he was right in in two instances. He scores the winning goal, and um, they didn't need penalties. Um, his lovely movement wins the goal. It's a bit of a tap in, really, but um, his movement wins the game. Really, he, he gets in ahead of the uh, static Juventus defence, 
And Real Madrid had waited 32 years for a for a seventh European Cup. Of course, they won the lot. The first five European Cups had to wait until 66, where um, the late great Paco Hento scores um, or wins his sixth European Cup. Still a record that, of course, probably won't be beaten given where Cristiano Ronaldo is at the minute. But uh, there we are. And uh, yeah, Real Madrid looking forward to the millennium in terms of winning eighth, ninth, maybe even La Decima. But we'll go through them as we uh, rattle through these Gazprom episodes throughout this year. Next week, though, we're going to return back home. We're going to return to the Barclays 1996-1997 for the 74th episode of the What If Football podcast here on the Sports Social Podcast Network and anywhere else you do get your podcasts, of course. But you must know that you got through to the end of today's show. Thank you very much for listening, for supporting the channel if you do on, on Patreon or if you do on YouTube as well, where we are there seven days a week, of course. Until next time, silly. Podcast Network.